We're in a series called A.D., A New Beginning, and it's a look at the first ten chapters of the book of Acts. Today we are in chapter 9. We're going to be in chapter 9 for the next two weeks after this because there's so many rich stories and events in, in the ninth chapter, we don't want to overlook any of them. But today we're going to look at, I think, the, the greatest moment in church history. This is the most transformational moment in church history when the holy, unexpected, impossible circumstances change when we see that one was blinded by the light. Now, I, it's true that a lot of things once thought impossible maybe aren't necessarily Im impossible anymore. Uh, on January the 13th, 1946, comic strip detective Dick Tracy got a brand new piece of equipment shared with the police force that became an icon of Dick Tracy throughout the rest of the history of that comic strip. It was a two-way radio wristwatch kind of an apparatus. And of course, anybody that read Dick Tracy growing up knew that that was the most fanciful thing possible. Well, in April of this year, Apple released its new Apple Watch, which can do everything that Dick Tracy's watch did and so much more. Things once thought impossible are now reality. Dick Tracy would be proud and envious of an Apple Watch today. Spiritually speaking, what we think about impossibility today was what the early church thought about the conversion of this terrorist, this persecutor by the name of Saul of Tarsus. And who could blame the church? I mean, why would you think that the guy who is out to eradicate the church might indeed become a Christian? If a few years ago somebody had said to you, hey, did you read the news? Osama bin Laden has converted to Christianity. What would your response have been? Yeah, right. It's a ploy. It's a plot. It ain't true. He's just trying to weave, weave himself in so he can uncover all this Christianity kind of stuff. I think so many of the people in the first century church felt very much the same way about this story of Saul. Now, who was this first century persecutor of the church? Well, we are first introduced to him as Saul of Tarsus. Tarsus is his hometown, identifying where he was from. He was not born in Judea or Jerusalem. He was born in Tarsus, which today has been absorbed into the Mersin province of south-central Turkey. It's a, it's a region, it's a community of about three million people, uh, which means it's an influential community, the same as it was in Paul's day. Paul's hometown had a great influence on his life. And because he was not born in Judea, but rather born in Asia Minor, which is today Turkey, he was born a Roman citizen. And his trade was that of a tent maker. Religiously speaking, Saul was a man of impeccable Jewish heritage. He possessed a great knowledge of God's Word, was passionate in his devotion to the ways of God, and was fanatical about eradicating this church who he felt was a, an affront to the reputation of God. We meet him for the first time in the book of Acts at the stoning of Stephen. Do you remember the stoning of Stephen, the first Christian martyr to give his life for his faith. And we read in Acts 8, chapter, or chapter 8, verse 1, and Saul was there giving approval to his death. Those who were throwing the stones, you know what Paul did, or Saul? He held on to their cloaks. Chapter 9 of Acts opens then with these words. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's 
disciples. I mean, he is on it. He is going to persecute the church until he eliminates the church. And so, with special letters of blessing from the high priest in Jerusalem, he and the temple guard cohorts make their way to Damascus in Syria, where he is going to arrest these Christians who have escaped the city, bring them back, put them in prison, and put them on trial. Breathing out threats is, is a term that describes a bull like that is snorting before he attacks. Saul's intentions were intense. As a strict Pharisee, he would not have walked with the cohort of soldiers. He would have walked up in front of them within earshot of them, I suppose, but not in a conversational distance with them, which might explain why when Saul has his encounter, the soldiers don't quite understand what's going on. They see what's going on. They kind of hear this noise. They don't quite get it because Saul is up ahead of them. Now, the journey between Jerusalem and Damascus was about 140 miles. This would have been done probably on foot. And, uh, and so, this, this would have taken at least a week. You know, if you could cover 20 miles in a day, and that would be a lot of traveling, but Saul was intense. He was on top of it. Uh, it would have taken at least a week. So, toward the end of that week, as they neared the city of Damascus, Saul's life changed in the most dramatic way imaginable. He meets Jesus, for real. Now, if I had been setting up this meeting, okay, I would have had Jesus come as Jesus had come during his post-resurrection experiences. I would have had him come, open arm like this, and say, Saul, I am alive. Look at the nail prints in my hand. Look at the scar in my side. Now, now stop this business and, and, and see that it really is true I'm alive. But that's not the way it happened. Saul didn't meet Jesus like Mary did following the resurrection when Jesus came up to her and spoke her name softly in a tender, compassionate way. Saul, Saul didn't meet Jesus like Thomas did a week later when he was in the upper room and Jesus said, oh, Thomas, stop doubting and believe. Come put your fingers in my prints and your hand in my side. And Thomas falls on his knees and face and says, my Lord and my God. Saul does not meet him like Peter did on the seashore when Jesus says to him, Peter, do you love me? And he says, oh, Lord, you know that I love you. And he says, then feed my sheep. Those were tender, wonderful moments. This is, this is anything but that. This is a, an encounter of power and force and strength and an unbelievable, well, light. When Saul meets Jesus, it is the light of the world in all of his glory and power. It's like, it's like a thousand camera flashes going, thousands upon thousands of camera flashes going off all at once, but instead of it just being a momentary flash, it just stays on continuously. You know, when somebody gets up close in your face and takes a picture and, and there's a flash, whether it's with your camera or with, or with an act, or, 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 or phone, you know, for a minute you're going, oh, whoa. Oh, and you blink until your eyes kind of read. Imagine thousands of those going off, thousands upon thousands of those going off, and, and there's no relief. He is struck blind by the light of the world. The Bible says that God is light, and in him there is no darkness or shifting of shadow. It would have reminded Saul of what happened on the mountaintop when Moses had been on the mountain, and Moses came down, and his face reflected the light of being in the presence of God. If Peter, James, and John had been there, they would have said, oh, oh, that's like the light that we saw on the Mount of Transfiguration when Jesus was transfigured before his death. But for Saul, <clears throat> it, was, it was just a blinding 
life that drove him to his knees. On this road to persecution, Saul came face to face with the Prince of Peace, the light of the world himself. He couldn't see, but he heard a voice, and this is what the voice said in Acts 9-4. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you'll be told what you must do. No further instructions. Just get up and go. Now, why did God use such an appearance? Why the blinding light? I think, I think it was because God was trying to send a signal to Saul that said, you are spiritually blind. I'm going to make you physically blind for a few days so that you realize that you are spiritually blind blind in all of your efforts. Now, Jesus spoke in the Aramaic. Uh, the soldiers didn't understand all the confusion, but they did understand this. This guy who had been an ardent leader of their band, he was on a mission to Damascus, is suddenly a, a, as weak and helpless as a child. He can't get into the city by himself. They have to lead him into the city. And, and did you catch what Jesus said Jesus didn't say, Saul, why, why are you destroying my church? Saul, why are you beating up and persecuting those who are following me? Jesus said, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Don't miss this. I think there is great truth in what Jesus is saying here. Jesus had told his disciples earlier, remember, about doing good deeds. He said, when you do them to the least of these, my brothers, you do them to me. I think the opposite is just the, the true. When you hurt my followers, you also hurt me. It, it is the Lord's way of encouraging us that no matter what you go through, He goes through it with you. Isn't that an incredible promise? When you hurt, God hurts. When you're lonely, God comes alongside in your loneliness when your heart is broken, God is brokenhearted. When you're filled with joy, God is joyful for you. He said, why are you persecuting me? Because what you do to my people, you do to me because I'm right there with them. I go with them. I go before them. That should be an encouragement to every one of us in this room. We do not go through this world alone. We go with it through the Savior. Now, there's some valuable lessons in this story that we want to take a look at story's not done. We'll come back to it here in just a minute. But here, here's some things I want you to realize. And the, and the first one is simply this, the problem of pride or the problem with pride, however you want to look at it. Pride is a problem. Now, <clears throat> I don't know if it's our English language and its inadequacies at times uh, or, or exactly what it is, but this whole subject of pride has been a confusing one to me through the years. I don't know if you feel the same way or not. On the one hand, we are, we are warned in the Bible not to be prideful, and yet on the other hand, we are taught to take pride in our work. How do you answer the question, are you proud of your children? Well, of course you're proud of your children. I'm proud of my daughters. I'm proud of my family. You are too. But did I just sin when I said that? Or what about hometown pride, or pride in your school, or taking pride in your home and property? Is pride a vice, or is it a virtue? Well, in our English word pride, there, is, there are two meanings. There are, there are two sides to this. There is the bright side, and there's the dark side. Uh, there is a, a Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde kind of a meaning with the word pride. The bright side describes one who finds satisfaction, delight, and joy in someone or something. Okay, that's, that's good stuff. That's the positive side. Pride in your family, pride in your work, pride in your home, okay? The dark side is it's descriptive of someone who is arrogant, conceited, smug, egotistical, self-consumed, 
self-sufficient, superior, haughty. It is the person who says, I don't need God. That's the pride that is so distasteful and is also so sinful. Now, why was Paul so driven to, to eliminate the church? Why, why do you suppose? Well, I think it was pride. I mean, the Christians hadn't done anything personally to Saul. Part of his problem was he was a proud man. He was proud of his heritage. He was proud of his intellects. He was proud of his leadership positions. He was proud of his moral character. As a matter of fact, here's the problem. Saul thought he was really important to God. He had to defend God's reputation. I think, I think Saul felt that God needed him more than he needed God. You ever feel that way? You ever feel like God's lucky to have you? in his church? That how would things get done if it weren't for me working in the kingdom? Do you, do you ever feel that way? That, that's, a, that's when we border on the dark side of pride. When you think that God needs you more than you need God. And I think that's where Saul may have been. And that's the kind of pride that destroys us. Someone wisely said, pride is the only disease known to man that makes everyone sick except the one who has it. I like what Andrew Murray wrote. He said, the truth is this, pride must die in you or nothing of heaven can live in you. And of course, the classic is Proverbs 16, 18. Pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. And I'm telling you, pride does destroy. Back uh, a few years ago, when the, before the Soviet Union had collapsed as the Soviet Union, two Soviet ships were, were on the Black Sea, and they were on a collision course with each other. And, and as a matter of fact, they did collide. And, and because of that collision in the Black Sea, 398 Russian passengers perished in the icy waters of the Black Sea. When research was conducted on what caused the crash, this is what they found. There was nothing technological wrong with either one of the ships. Their radars were intact. Their, their sonars were intact. Everything was working like it should have been. There was no fog. There, there was nothing obscuring the visual contact with another ship. What they found was that each of the captains of those Russian vessels knew for 45 minutes that they were on a collision course with another Russian vessel, and yet both of them were so proud that they would not change course. Each waited for the other one to concede. And when they realized that they were closing in on each other, when they finally both decided to move, they could not move fast enough, and they collided, and 398 people died because of pride. Pride is destructive. Thankfully, on the road to Damascus, Saul traded his pride, his black pride for a godly passion, a passion to see people of all races and all cultures and all places come to know Jesus Christ as their Savior. And I love how you see this transformation in, in Saul. He goes from this man who is just intense about destroying the church to being this humble man who reaches out. In, in, in Philippians, Paul writes to the church later and he says, but whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish 
that I may gain Christ. Here's this guy who's been so proud of who he is and saying, none of that matters anymore. The only thing that matters is knowing Jesus. What a transformation. What's, what stands between you and committed service to Jesus Christ? What keeps you from being able to say, nothing else matters, just Jesus? If I get him in the right place, everything else falls into place. Could it be your pride? Could it be my pride that keeps us from being who God wants us to be? You know, several times in the Bible, God changes names. He changed Abram's name to Abraham, Jacob's name to Israel, Simon's name to Peter. He also changes Saul's name. Now, don't miss this, all right? Saul's name means in demand. Sounds appropriate for the actions of Saul, doesn't it? Saul, in demand. Do you know what Paul means? Little. Little. God is saying, Saul, I don't ever want you to forget who you are. You're little, but I'll use you in great ways. And so every time somebody addressed him as Paul, he was reminded of God's power at work in him. You and I need to keep our pride in check too. It's okay to be proud of your family. It's okay to take pride in your work. It's okay to take pride in your home and property. But don't you ever get to the point where you think God needs you more than you need God, because that's the pride that'll destroy. Okay, here's the second thing that I think is, is unique in this story, and that is the surprising nature of God. For, okay, they lead him into the city, struck blind on the road to Damascus. They lead him into the city, and for three days, Saul was left in utter darkness. He ate or drank nothing. Don't miss this. This ought to jump out at you like it should every time. This is another one of the three-day stories in Scripture. Remember, new life comes at the end of three days. Over and over again, we see it. From the darkness of the tomb into the marvelous light of his resurrection, I love these three-day stories. Paul now experiences, has his own encounter with a tomb-like darkness for three days until his sight is restored. You see, for three days, the rest of the apostles languished in the fear of the death of Christ, not knowing what God would do. And here, this new apostle, languishes for three days in the darkness of his own tomb, waiting to find out what God would do. I love these three-day stories. Enter Ananias. New character in the story. Ananias. And you say, wait a minute. I thought Ananias died in chapter 5 because he lied to the Lord. He did. Not the same Ananias. Okay? <laughs> Don't forget there can be lots of people with the same name in the Bible, all right? This guy is in Damascus, Syria, 140 miles away from the Ananias that died for lying. So just because it's the same name, don't assume that it's the same guy, all right? <clears throat> no one in his right mind would have been able to do what Ananias did. Nobody would have wanted to go and see Saul of Tarsus. Ananias is a devout Christian man, and this is the way it all comes down. Verse 10 of chapter 9. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias? Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street. By the way, I understand that Straight Street is still a main street in the city of Damascus. 
and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul. God's very specific, not just any Saul, but the Saul from Tarsus. For he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Now listen, <laughs> Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. Now that's a very calm response to this, and I don't think that that's how it happened. I may be wrong, but I think Ananias was a little bit more intense. Are you, are you crazy, Lord? Saul of Tarsus, you want me to go have a one-on-one, face-to-face confrontation with the biggest persecutor of the church? You've got to be kidding me, Lord. That's what I think Ananias was thinking if he wasn't saying it. And God goes on, but the Lord said to Ananias, go. This man, has my, this man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my sake. Poor Ananias. Now, folks, if you ever want to see a step of faith, this is it. Every fiber of his being would have been saying, stay away, stay away, stay away, stay away. But his faith was greater than his fear, and he went. I want to meet Ananias when I get to home, home to heaven. I, he's one of the first guys I want to meet. He, he's, he's going to be a part of the 100 first guys I want to meet when I get home to heaven. I want to see this guy whose courage was so terrific. <clears throat> Verse 17, so Ananias went, placing his hands on Saul. He said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit immediately. Something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again, and he got up and was baptized. You know what? A lot of people have problem with baptism because of their pride. They say, I don't want to do that. I'm, I'm a proud person. I don't want to go into the waters of baptism. Let me tell you, when you've been blind for three days, waiting for the light of God's revelation, there is no more pride. And Saul got up and was baptized into Christ. Who would have guessed? Saul! God works in the most surprising ways. And what a contrast. Saul the persecutor becomes Saul the proclaimer. He took three long and arduous missionary journeys, reaching so much of the Gentile world at that day and time. Reached more people I think anybody else has ever reached in history. He wrote one half of the New Testament of the 27 books. 13 books are certainly written by him, maybe another one. The book of Hebrews, we don't know who wrote that one. He endured beatings and stonings and whippings and shipwreck, a day and night in the sea, a bite from a poisonous stake, ridicule, mockery, and humiliation. He was imprisoned on more than one occasion, and he was beheaded in Rome to end his life. And I have to wonder, when his head was on that block ready to be chopped off, did he think of Stephen? on the day when he held the coats so they could stone him. You reckon Stephen was the first one to greet him home? As for the brave Ananias, <clears throat> this guy that I want to meet in heaven, we never read of him again. Can you believe that? Here's the guy that's responsible for going to greet Saul, and, and we don't read, we got about six verses. He just blows up on the scene, and he blows out just as quickly. About six verses devoted to Ananias and his ministry, and then he's gone. But, but you remember this, there would be no Paul without Ananias. Sometimes God has big jobs for us to do. Sometimes he has 
simple, small jobs for us to do. <laughs> My home preacher, when I was in high school, had this little poem that he would repeat quite often. It goes like this. Don't worry if your job is small or your reward is few. Remember that the mighty oak was once a nut like you. <laughs> you know, there's some really great truth in that humor. Every great oak starts as an acorn. Sometimes your life may feel like the acorn. Sometimes it may feel like the mighty oak, but I'm here to tell you there would be no mighty oak without the acorn. There would be no Paul without the Ananias. There is no unimportant job in the kingdom, so don't be surprised at what God calls you to do. Paul becomes at this point in time the central character of the rest of the book of Acts and the rest of the New Testament as we know it. He becomes the leader, undisputed leader, evangelist, preacher, proclaimer, writer of early Christian history. Ananias appears as a six-verse blip on the radar screen. But both are incredibly important in God's kingdom. Open your eyes. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is the changeless one, but he is never the predictable one. So open up your eyes, and if he calls for you to be a small piece in a big picture, you play it well. And if he calls you to be a big piece in the big picture, you play it well because sometimes he'll call for an Ananias-sized project and sometimes he'll call for a Paul-sized project. Whatever he calls you to do, do it with all your heart because both of these men did exactly that. And you say, does God still work that way? Oh, I believe he does. I believe God still has these kinds of, of life-changing moments. I met a man when I was in India a few years ago. His name was Mahipal, who when I heard his story through the translator, I thought, this is, this is Saul of Tarsus becoming Paul all over again. Let me tell you another story that you might recognize more readily. Back in 2012, Charles Colson passed away at the age of 80. But Charles Colson was first on the scene of American history as a part of President Nixon's inner circle. He was known as Nixon's hitman. He was described as being the evil genius of an evil administration. Colson even described himself as being ruthless in getting things done for the president. In August of 1973, when the Watergate scandal was just kind of coming down around everybody and not knowing what, is, what all was going to happen, he went to see uh, a fellow by the name of Tom Phillips, who was then president of the Raytheon Corporation, because Colson was going to go back and be a, a, an attorney for the Raytheon Corporation again, and they were going to see how this played out. And what Colson didn't know was that Tom Phillips had been praying about what he should say, and when Colson showed up at his house, they didn't talk about the Raytheon Corporation, they didn't talk about what he might do for them. Tom Phillips poured out his heart about his faith in Jesus Christ. And then Tom Phillips read to Charles Colson a part about pride in C.S. Lewis's book, Mere Christianity, and then gave him the book, Mere Christianity. When Colson left that night, he got to his car and he couldn't drive away because he was weeping too harshly. Eleven months later, July of 1974, Colson was convicted and imprisoned for his participation in the Watergate scandal, but it was during that time in prison that he realized how desperately the people behind bars needed to know Jesus Christ. And out of that grew this prison fellowship ministry that went on to impact 114 
countries, thousands of men and women who are coming out of prison redeemed by the blood of Christ, going back into society. Uh, on the 35th anniversary of his conversion, Charles Colson said, I can honestly say that the worst day of the last 35 years of my life has been better than the best day of the 41 years that preceded it. That was in 1973. Elsie and I came here in 1981, and whenever Charles Colson's name would come up, sometimes in the news about prison fellowship, I, there were people here in the congregation at the time said, ha, I wouldn't walk across the street to talk to that man. I don't think it's real. It's because, you see, when people who are so ardent against, it takes a while to see the genuineness. It took a few years, but it soon became apparent that his conversion was true. Now, here's the part, here's the part most, of, most of us miss. Charles Colson also said that Tom Phillips said he had never shared his faith with anybody. Never. And he said during that time he was praying that night about what he should say to Charles Colson. He said it was as if the Lord said to him, tell him about me, Tom, because Colson is going to need a friend. First time in his life he had ever shared the gospel with anybody. I don't know if he's ever shared the gospel like that with anybody since, but it transformed this man who became a mighty servant in the body of Christ. You have a Saul that becomes Paul, and you have an Ananias right there in the story. One guy that appears as a blip on the radar screen and then fades from view, and the other one who for the rest of his life made an impact for the kingdom like no one else could imagine. You see, that's, that's the way God works. Don't, don't be surprised at the way God works in surprising ways because He may call you to be a Paul. He may call you to be an Ananias. But when He calls, you go.